People could discriminate against you with impunity and they could just say, no, I'm not going to give you that job because you're disabled and that would be that. So it's about you have an impairment and that might be, might or might not be limited limiting, but the things that really limit you is what goes on in society around you. It wasn't my problem, it was as much the problem of the world around me as it was my problem. And that's a huge weight taken off your shoulders, huge weight, because now you can you start to understand, you can start to think about change and you can start to think about working for change. Welcome to Generations of Change. I'm Anya Kelly Costello a young blind journalist and advocate known for my delight in asking endless questions. I mainly grew up in the 2000s, and I vividly remember the camaraderie of being at camps with other blind kids and teens. In the real world at school, I was surrounded by sighted people. I was a good student, but I remember the shame I felt when a teacher asked me why I was sitting alone at lunch, and the frustration of having to fight to be in the jazz band just because I couldn't see. While at uni, I stumbled into a role advocating for accessibility law. Suddenly, it was my job to connect with and empower other disabled people to be part of a call for change, and I had to find the courage to build relationships with a whole lot of virtual strangers. That job would end up bringing me into community and solidarity with students, writers, academics, business people, and advocates of all ages. Disability was our shared experience, and together we would champion change. Our efforts built on decades of leadership from disabled people. But how was it growing up disabled 40 or 50 years ago, or acquiring disability as an adult? How has Aotearoa changed? How has it not? What unplanned moments would shape the lives of the visionary disabled people who dedicated themselves to making inclusion the norm? Join me for one of seven conversations where both of us get to find out. It's great to talk to you today, Robin. Could you introduce yourself for me? Yeah, sure. Kia ora, I'm Robin Hunt and I've had a low vision all my life. I grew up in the 50s and 60s in the South Island and I've worked in advocacy for a good deal of my adult life, but not all of it for reasons that hopefully will become obvious as we talk. Mm. Yeah, let, let's go back to the beginning. Um, what was your experience like growing up in education? I went to a small country primary school where I had a lovely new entrance teacher who taught me how to read, which was magic and has been really important to me ever since. Um, so I just went to school like everybody else and muddled along as best I could really, and I didn't think about I mean, I knew I was different from everyone else in school and everyone else in my family, and my family were quite protective, but I didn't really think about it very much. I don't think you do when you're a kid, you just get on with life, really. Mm. So you felt relatively included then in the school setting and like by your peers? Uh, and kind of relatively. Um, I, well, I hated playing rounders, hated it. <laughs> and, uh, but I loved swimming, and generally I was included, and I just read books all the time. If I could get hold of books, I would read them. But um, when I went to secondary school, it was very different. The expectations were really low, and um, I was not expected to achieve much at all. In fact, because it was a private school, I was not allowed to sit school certain three years like everyone else, but I did. And so I sat school certain three years and passed. Mm, mm. 
And did you, did you start to get a sense that disability advocacy might be something that would be important to you at that point or mm, not, not yet? I don't think I would have thought of it in those terms. I thought of it in, I was very stubborn sort of kid and, and I, a passive resistance was my forte mm. and if I didn't want to do something, I wouldn't. Right, um, and what did you do at university? Um, well, I, I always think that university, if I say I was institutionalised at 13 and, and university was my halfway house <laughs> because I, I did um, English literature and political science and a fairly useless today, I suppose, arts degree, but uh, I enjoyed it very much. I learnt a lot at university, not all of it in the lecture theatres. Um, I had a great time. And shortly after that, I think you, you went into the media, is that right? Um, yes, I had one job that didn't work well for me. I came to Wellington and that didn't work out. So I went back to Christchurch and where I wanted to work in the media and I got a job on the press doing illustrations and mixing up all, we had, um, it was quite old fashioned production. So we still had zinc plates and I got all the racehorses mixed up. So I got into real trouble for that. But mm. people didn't know how to help you do things that were reasonable for you to do. So you were expected to do everything that everyone else did. And so consequently you would fail um, occasionally. Mm. Did, so the concept of reasonable accommodation obviously didn't oh. really exist. No, no, nobody at this understood point. a thing like that. No, no. And oh, when are we so. talking? Is, is this a This will be the early 70s, yeah. yeah. Early seven, late 60s, early 70s was my university in my time. I spent three years on the press mm. in Christchurch, did captions, uh, started off as a caption writer, which was kind of fun, um, and then moved down to the newsroom. I kept making myself a nuisance until they let me go into the newsroom. Mm. But I did have to work as an underrate worker in the newsroom, and I've never forgotten that, and I've always hated that. What does that mean? You get paid under the whatever the going rate is. You were paid less. under the. I was paid less than everyone else doing the same work as me. Wow. Yeah. Yep. yep. And, and that happened to a lot of people, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know many people who who were under that because I didn't know any other disabled people at that stage, apart from a colleague with MS who was my mentor. Mm -hmm. But the seventies, there was no disability rights movement then, so you know yes. we didn't um, know any of that stuff. So, you. You were involved initially in newsrooms not doing disability specific work at the beginning. Never occurred to me. Mm. Nobody would ever suggest that you would write about disability. In fact, the only way you'd write about disability is from a charity perspective. You know, it's like some charity did something or mm. another and it was always non-disabled people. They never so talked to disabled people. Was it something that you, you know, you wanted to connect with other disabled people or maybe God, no. didn't really connect? No, no, but not at all. I, I think I would have, if somebody had made me go off to a a gathering of Crips and Blindies, I would have run a mile. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't because I saw it as all as less than. So I was, at that age, I was trying to be like everyone else. I didn't want to be different. Yeah. Be like everybody else, don't stand out. Or if you do stand out, you stand out for the reasons everybody else likes you, likes people to stand up for it. Mm. So it was totally taking away the ability to go, okay, actually my impairment means that I'm going to do such and such differently, but I should still be paid the same, for example. Uh, yeah, well, there yeah. wasn't much option to do anything differently. We didn't have computers. Um, we had old typewriters and paper, and um, it was quite a, a, an old-fashioned production system even then, actually. They modernised not long after I left. Mm. And so I suppose in the case of your job as well, it, you wouldn't have had a choice of get a pay rise, it would have probably been you get that job and you get paid less or you don't take that job, was it? That's right, pretty much. You had to do the job as it was. 
and yeah. you had to do the same job that everybody else did. So instead of finding ways that you could, they could use your skills better without making them such a uh, without making them such a barrier or without there being so many other barriers, then they, th that hadn't occurred to them. Mm. And when I left, my, um, my boss wrote me a terrible reference. It was not to do with your workability at no, all? No, and to, do to do with impairment. With it was impairment. totally impairment focused. Yes, and that basically um, sort of medicalises you or puts you down to your impairment. Yeah, absolutely. That. It reduces you to your impairment and, yeah. and doesn't even look at your skills. Well, when, when I first set out, I wanted to be a journalist. That's what I really wanted when I left university. And in those days, people don't understand it now, but you could most people with a degree would just walk into some job or another. It was easy. And I applied for about 40, I think, before I, you know, before I got a job. And people could discriminate against you with impunity, and they could just say, no, I'm not going to give you that job because you're disabled, and that would be that. There's nothing you could do about that. But I was applying for other jobs, um, and I do remember there was one I went for because somebody I knew knew the person who interviewed me and she told her that they didn't give me the job because they was, it was like I was facing a lighted window when, and during the interview and because I'm very light sensitive, um, I was probably frowning a bit and she said oh, I would frown at people and put them off. Wow. So I couldn't have the job and she told somebody that I worked with that. So uh, you just know that that kind of stuff just goes on. It still goes on, I think. This was in the 80s by now. Then I um, had a baby. She took up a lot of my time, mm -hmm. as your first baby does. I started getting involved in disability stuff because one of the programs that I did work on all through the 80s was a program called um, Future Indicative on national radio, which was a disability program. So I started learning about disability and I started meeting other disabled people. When I was in the UK, I came across UPS, which was the Union of the Physically Impaired... Against Segregation? Against Segregation, I think it, that's what yeah. it was. And I started reading their stuff and started reading about... Um, started reading the writing of disabled women and found the social model. And I, it was Tell like, me about the social model. Um, who we are is okay, what happens to us isn't. It's basically what it is. Um, so it's about you have an impairment and that might be might or might not be limited, limiting but the things that really limit you is what goes on in society around you so it's what we would call what I would call today I would probably call it institutionalized ableism you know it's the same as sexism or racism it's ableism and mm. it's institutionalized and everything so you were saying you found a version I found of that, that, that I found that about the time I had my daughter because I was having to think about having a baby and would she have my impairment? And I had to feel okay about that. And I'd reached a point where I thought, yes, if she has my impairment, her life will be good, my life is good, so it's okay. So that was about me coming to think about things being okay. It was okay to have an impairment. So that, that philosophy or that way of viewing impairment and disability had quite an impact then? Yes, it did, because it took off the weight of it's your fault or it's your problem. It wasn't my problem, it was as much the problem of the world around me as it was my problem. Yeah. And that's a huge weight taken off your shoulders, mm. huge weight. Mm. Because now you can you start to understand, you can start to think about change and you can start to think about working for change. The first telethon was really politicising. Oh, it's where they raise lots of money for the disabled. And people can, all the celebrities want to be seen and they had um, with disabled people. And so they wheeled in all these token crips 
And the little girl who was the, they had the telephone child. She had crutches and she walked into this big empty room alone, all by herself, this little girl on her crutches with pink bows on them. And I, oh, I, didn't, <laughs> I wanted to throw up. So I was feeling pretty fed up by that stage. Yes. So after that, I started getting involved in employment issues. I got involved with some freelance journalists because there weren't that, it was a very different scenario then. People worked for publications or, and, and freelancers were considered as slightly um, outside the pale really. But I got to know all kinds of people and I was started to talk about employment issues. And what, what sort of employment issues? Uh, well, we were trying to, trying to get more equality in employment, and more fairness in employment, and more people in work, and more people being paid properly, all of those things. But before that, I must have worked for the Royal Commission on, on Social Policy to get disabled people involved and, and to liaise with the disability community. So we travelled around the, the country doing that. I went travelling with the uh, Royal Commission on Social Policy. So then after that, I went and worked at the Human Rights Commission for a year as an educator. Mm -hmm. And then the job came up at the, at the State Service Commission for a disability uh, member of the Equal Employment Opportunities team. And I took that role. Um, and we worked really hard. We even produced a report called The Invisible Minority. Mm. We um, instigated Disability Pride as a movement and a and, and a celebration. August was Disability Pride Month. Mm. And, and I think the value of that EEO movement was that we set up networks. And this was the first time that disabled people often had been able to meet together different disability groups. So, you know, it would be whoever was working in that department would, um, would, work, would, would meet together as a group within that department. So you get, so this was the first time that diverse, you met with people with other disabilities. What it was that people were meeting outside of any kind of service provider uh, framework, they were meeting in a much more independent framework. So I think people started thinking more independently beyond being sort of colonised by service providers who were pretty, still pretty paternalistic in those days. Just to go back a step, in 1980, to 1983, I think, um, DPA was formed, Disabled Persons Assembly it was called. So, so I, I started getting involved in DPA right from the beginning. In fact, I took my baby daughter to the first conference in Hamilton. I remember at the first conference objecting because it was an all-male exec and there were no women, and I objected to that. Um, and I, I served as president in the Hunt Valley during the 80s. Mm. So that was another sort of stream to, to what went on. And by the end of the 80s, when I was working at um, the State Services Commission, we were starting to ag agitate for changes to the Human Rights Act. We got together with, the, we formed a coalition called Common Ground with um, uh, gays and lesbians. And we, because it was the AIDS epidemic, you see, so we didn't want to be split off. Mm. So we wanted everybody in and we got everybody in. So that was a real... Um, point of change and a point where people were starting to really get more political. But we wanted to include a wider range of people. We thought it was unfair that some people were not protected in the ways that others were. 
Right. So yes. we, we wanted disability to have the protections of the Human Rights Act. So now disability is a grounds of discrimination. Now disability is a grounds of discrimination. Because I guess that's the thing as well, is that you always have players working behind the scenes for a long time, usually before things change. You do, you do. And then you, you would go on to do a television program that um, was focused around disability. It was called Inside Out. Um, it was largely telling disability stories. Um, we did, we did a series on history. We did it, lots and lots of interviews with people. I did a lovely one with some women, three disabled women, very different women, um, about their, what they did with their lives and what they saw were their barriers that they encountered. Mm. And the whole program was really advocating for, for things to change. I think it was because we felt that public television had a role to represent all New Zealanders and that disabled people weren't represented in a way that we thought was appropriate. Um, and so we wanted to make sure that we could tell our stories and could have a slice of the action. When roughly did Inside Out air? Inside Out was sort of the late 90s. And how would you say, you know, the representations of disabled people and disability related issues and even disability angles on other issues are in the media now compared to then or compared to before when it, you started working? It's patchy. It's patchy. It's improved in some areas, like there are some publications that are really um, open to new representations, such as, and these are often online publications, so you've got things like uh, the spin-off, the sapling, um, Pantograph Punch, which is not really a um, news media, it's an arts publication. But the, we still get inspiration porn. Yeah. Um, I do think it's improving. Explain inspiration porn for me. It was um, sort of explained by Stella Young, who was an Australian, and she did a TED talk where she talked about being, her, when she was young, they wanted to give her an award. And her parents said, but she hasn't done anything. And they wanted to give her an award, award just for being a crip who went to school sort of thing and they said and, and how wonderful this was you know that she would done all the things that everyone else did and so Stella called that inspiration porn it kind of speaks for itself there's also pity porn which is the other thing you know the yeah. uh, the other sort of side of that equation I think you know when stories are written about disabled people for the sheer benefit of making non-disabled people kind of feel good um, yes. as well. Then you, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're feel-good stories. So you went on to become, what was your title, Disability Commissioner? I co-chaired the first um, Disability Strategy Reference Group and so that I did that and then I joined the Human Rights Commission as a Human Rights Commissioner point three. So it was very part-time. So when I was appointed that was my role to do disability work. As it happened, when I joined, where the work was starting on the Disability Rights Convention, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, UNCRPD. So a lot of my time was spent travelling and working on that, both here at home and in New York. So um, we developed it. And New Zealand took a leading role in that because our, our um, representative at the UN um, was, chaired some of the convention meetings and he was excellent. So, so we were very lucky in that we were able to influence, make a lot of influence. So we could influence things like the twin track approach for women, which meant that while there was a separate article for disabled women, 
women's rights are also threaded throughout the convention and have to be taken into account mm. on, in each article. While I was at the commission, because it was such a part-time role, I was working in um, web and information accessibility, um, setting up a company and doing a whole lot of work with government on that, setting the government standards um, and educating, training, um, critiquing websites. So I was doing that too. Mm. Mm -hmm. And in terms of how the disability community and disabled people are involved in advocacy now, obviously social media has um, had quite a big impact there. And I think we're all connected much more internationally as well, which is great. We can see what's happening in other countries. We can um, connect with people working in other countries and see what they're doing and think, well, if they can do it, so can we. Mm. I think we do still have problems of scale though in New Zealand and we're still quite scattered so it's kind of difficult to get things sort of organised at times. Mm. Um. And not everybody uses social media, often the people at the really bottom of the disability heap don't get to, don't get to use social media as easily as others. And there are still barriers, access barriers to social media and there are digital barriers generally for mm. a lot of people. So you know we've still got quite a way to go on that. Mm. And of course one thing that social media also does or contributes to is um, making it a lot more immediate to see media articles in all sorts of different formats and not just print anymore. That's you know? right. Yeah. So if um, you know your advocacy or all of the sort of areas of your life are getting you know a bit much, mm. do you have a hobby that you enjoy getting to get kind of your head out of this world for a little bit? I listen to music, I read um, whodunits, I love a good murder. Um, I watch a bit of television video stuff, um, go to the movies, listen to music, go to the orchestra, uh, opera, theatre, I like all that sort of stuff. I like to get out in the fresh air and walk. Mm. Um, that's always good if you're feeling a bit sort of inside your head to go and walk. I used to like to swim and if I can sw find somewhere close by that I can swim, I might do that too. That was good. I used to swim up and down and not think of anything at all, mm. which was lovely. Just yep. completely blank out. Mm, yeah. Escape. Oh, and, and my family, my children, my grandchildren. I have a grandson, um, and I like to spend time with him, mm. and play with him, and not even think about anything else, but just send, just play with him. Because kids him. are good like that, right? They are. Mm, lovely. And if you had some advice for your twenty-year-old self or your much younger self, um, what would you? What would you say to her and why? Two things. I would say hope, because there have been times in my life when hope was not easy to find, when I felt quite alone and isolated. So hope is important. And the, the, the sort of connected to that is finding your community and finding your disability community of others, not because they've got the same impairment as you and it would be good for you, but, but other people who understand without having to say how things are, that, that, that get, they have the same sense of crip humour, I think crip humour is pretty important myself, um, that have the same sense of justice and injustice and who um, maybe like to do the same things. So you've got to have things in common, but, but a disability, I think for me, finding a disability community was like coming home. In conversation with Robin Hunt. The music is Siva by June. Development and funding thanks to Imagine Better. 
Edited by Juliana Machado. Visual direction by Benjamin Brooking. Produced by Anya Kelly Costello.